Good morning. So this morning I wanted to talk about uh, hope and maybe despair, lack of hope. Um, faith will probably also come up. We seem to talk about that a lot. It's leap day, so it seems appropriate. I'm currently in the last year of graduate school program. And one of the classes I'm taking right now is called Death, Dying, Bereavement. It's actually my favorite class. And we come together once a week, talk about death. Uh, we become familiar, uh, even friendly with finitude. We do exercises like writing our own obituary, which is really kind of a powerful exercise to kind of makes makes my mortality real and also uh, the arbitrariness of whenever it will happen comes alive too. And it's really uh, highlights the extent to which I'm not in control <laughs> of when that will happen. And I wanted to say just a little bit about how this talk came to being. We were reading, in this past week in the class, we are reading a book called Hope in Pastoral Care and Counseling. It's written by a man named Andrew Lester, who's a Christian chaplain. And the book talks a lot about the narrative nature of the self which was kind of very familiar from my own Zen experience, kind of the idea that um, so much of what I construe as a self is the story that I tell myself about myself or the story I tell about others to myself. Um, and one of the things he was saying, did I just... Um, and the way he construes uh, grieving or bereavement as the, is the kind of loss of a future story. And there's a lot of talk in this book about future stories and that our human brokenness is uh, a failure of future stories. Despair is the failure of a future story. One sentence, he writes, if the future seems closed, it is difficult to love in the present. When I was reading this, it seemed a little backwards to me from my Zen training, where I was familiar with the idea of my, the idea of myself as a story that I hold on to, uh, 
But when I came to practice, I was, I was encouraged to look at those stories and see if I could let them go to a certain extent, not buttress up a, a story of the future. And this led me to thinking about how do we uh, arrive at hope if we're in a context where we're encouraged to hold loosely future stories. How many people are here for the first time today? You come? Welcome. So we have this thing in our tradition called the Bodhisattva vows. And we're actually going to chant them later uh, today at the end of this talk. We'll chant them. Beings, and they go like this. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. And I thought, you know, on the surface, if we read these vows on a piece of paper, it seems like a, an invitation to despair and overwhelm. These vows are impossible to fulfill. Imagine if we replaced beings with emails. Emails are numberless. I vow to reply to them. Immediately, I'm overwhelmed. But my experience of... My experience of chanting these vows does not um, lead me to despair or overwhelm. So I was very curious why that is. What's going on that these impossible-to-fulfill vows um, become actually a source of support? And I thought, if I can figure that out, maybe it will help me with the emails. I don't know if I'm successful with that yet. But So I was really curious about what happens when we make a vow like that, and specifically these vows. What is... unique to that request that um, keeps me going on. And I wrote down a few things that uh, I understand as um, as life-giving and uh, support-inducing qualities of these vows. I think 
one thing is even though these vows are um, in a sense forward-looking, you could say they're looking towards the future to this endless uh, field of beings, delusions. The vows are the vowing body is actually in the present. The person making the vow or the community making, making the vow is starting from this moment. That's where the vow is originating. And then it goes out. So they're rooted in a present an intention that's arising in the moment. Another thing that's, I think, special about these vows is that they're vows that are uh, they're relational and they're arising as a response to, to suffering. So they're actually a, they're a call. And Shohaku Okamura in his book, Living by Vow, talks about how the, these four vows are connected to the Four Noble Truths. So beings are numberless. I've had to free them from suffering. Delusions pointing to the cause. Dharma gates point to how these obstacles can become opportunities that we move through, and then Buddha's way, the path. So these vows are uh, emerging out of a response to a call from the universe, from beings. When we make those vows here, most often we're in a group. We'll do that later today. I think another, when I intone those vows, I'm also opening up to uh, the support of ancestors. The line of beings who have made these vows in the past that are uh, bearing witness to those vows. When we have uh, precept ceremonies here, or when people receive the precepts, they make vows in public, which are received and held by uh, a community. So even though these vows are impossible, they contain within them, they contain within them uh, acknowledgement of support and assistance from the universe. Even in the chant that we just did, the Ehe Koso Hotsukamon, it's a vow, it's Dogen's vow And there's a lot in it about the future. 
we will become Buddhas someday. Those who were Buddhas in the past, before that, they were just regular sentient beings. But there's this prophecy, a future story of our, of our Buddhahood. But this, this vow that he's making is rooted in acts of confession and repentance, which are acknowledgments of our own karmic life, our own limited nature. So what Andrew Lester calls a transfinite hope is rooted in the mundane details of our uh, karmic consciousness. It's not separate from that. For me, the most powerful thing the vows do are, because of their impossible nature, they're uh, humbling. They have a kind of leveling effect, maybe. In the face of this impossible vow, I'm one person in a community. So there's, again, there's an aspect of confession in that vow of acknowledging our humanness and our our limited view so there's a, a humbling and i think tenderizing effect of the vow that enables us to, in that humility, we can open up to the functioning of the universe. We actually become open up. We open up to possibility. We become tender in the face of new possibilities. Our imagination is liberated to move into possibilities. I really liked what uh, Reverend Chimio, who was here last weekend, was talking about the quality of being tender as... actually something that's strong. I think there's, we can think of being tender as being, well, it is vulnerable, but somehow that it's uh, weak. But she really stressed that being tender is actually, makes us 
supple and resilient and uh, response, able to respond, responsible. And so I think these vows have uh, this tenderizing and opening effect. I want to go back to stories. I don't, I don't want to... I also think sometimes stories get a bad rap. I don't want to discount stories. Because I think what living by vow does is liberate the imagination to move, to be creative. So how can we think of stories as like liberating acts of imagination as opposed to reified narratives about who we think we are and who others are. So I don't think stories are not a bad thing inherently. I don't want to throw those away. When am I supposed to go to? See, the possibility just happened. <laughs> I got another five minutes. So how do we do this? I've been waxing poetic about vow and, and some of its powerful qualities. How do we actually do this in, uh, in practice? I think, uh, for one... I think the precepts, our ethical teachings, are actually pointing the way to uh, how we enact this vow in in our relationships, in our daily lives, in the way we act, in the way we speak the way we hold on to views. I think the precepts are (coughs) pointing always to ways that we can bring that grand, impossible bodhisattva vow into, into situations. I think within, within Zen practice, the forms that we offer are also uh, making that same request. Something like chanting or bowing, working in the kitchen. There's this, As we surrender to these forms, there's this yogic transformation of bodies into, into intentional bodies. We learn how to become intentional bodies. 
that can actually be uh, conduits of hope. I'm studying the Lotus Sutra right now, and the word faith keeps coming up. And the character for the, the word faith is a, is a person and words, the teaching. Uh, there's a mouth, so it's like vocal words, not written words. So the idea of faith as the way I'm thinking of it now is the teaching is actually in the body of the person. And I think the, the forms kind of work on us that way by gradually entering the body and giving the body an intentional inclination that blooms into a a kind of confidence and trust kind of the in the universe we have a a confidence in our intercon- interconnectedness and i think that that trust that confidence can be a fountain of deep deep hope that's not connected to outcomes. I also think we do another way we manifest these vows in, in practice is by coming together as a community. creating a space for hope to function for ourselves and other beings. By intentionally creating spaces for all of us to live into a new possibility. I think the, for now, in the world as it is now, that's for me. That's the uh, that's really what makes sangha a refuge. Is that there is a possibility of doing that for ourselves and others. So uh, a hoping community. And this also gives us um, energy to keep going back into the impossible vow. So the, the vow... arouses 
humility, which opens us up to our connection to the universe. And the real, realization of that funnels back into our practice and I think helps sustain us in staying on the path and to keep uh, practicing. That's all I have. As I've said before, when I write these talks, well, write them, I'm, I'm writing them for myself in a way. They're what I need to hear. Not that it's not informed by everybody, but it's, uh, it's, I'm writing this in a way to encourage myself. And so I hope that it's also been encouraging for you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.